Do you love books but don't have time to read them? Do you wish you could listen to your favorite stories while driving, working out, or doing chores? If so, you need Audible, the world's largest library of audiobooks and podcasts. With Audible, you can enjoy unlimited access to thousands of titles across genres and categories from bestsellers to classics, thrillers, romance, fiction, and nonfiction. You can also discover new and exclusive content from Audible Originals, featuring original stories and performances by celebrities and authors. Plus, you can download your audiobooks and podcasts offline for listening anywhere, anytime, on any device. And with Audible Plus, you can get even more benefits, such as unlimited listening to select audiobooks and podcasts, free exchanges and returns, and a 30-day free trial. So what are you waiting for? Join Audible today and start your listening adventure. Visit the show notes to support the show and get your free Audible trial today. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Gentlemen, what's a body joke from a film or show you watched that went over your head as a kid? So for me, this one was easy. Came to me immediately. It's one of the funniest jokes of all time. I can't believe they got away with it. I can't believe I saw it as a kid. And it's the joke from Animaniacs where they... It's the fingerprints joke from Animaniacs. I mean, just Google the clip. It's 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 so filthy. It is truly one of the filthiest jokes you'll it's I I really, really can't believe they got away with a joke where the punchline is Dot thinks they're asking her to shove her fingers up the artist formerly known as Prince's asshole. And she, you know, right or wrong, don't judge her. She says no thank you and throws Prince across the room. Um, because she would rather not fingerprints. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, that is just one of the funniest fucking, I can't, we used to be a country (laughs) where kids content could have something that truly just disgusting in it. And just because it's wordplay, kids aren't going to get it. But if their parents are in their room, the parents are like, ha, oh no, wait, no. Oh, God, no. Fuck, stop. Turn, change the channel. Uh, it's unbelievable. It's really, guys, Google the clip. It's the funniest fucking thing. So my answer when I was thinking about it, you know, I, I, I don't know if I could necessarily nail down the baldiest joke or the most shocking joke. So instead, what I started thinking about was a time where something went over my head as a kid. Uh, or, or like, not even just went over. My, I mean, I was, it went over my head and like a year or two later, I would get the joke. And I, you know, the thing is with body jokes and kid stuff, there are kids who will ask about it, right? Like there's a famous Q&A where a little girl gets up and asks James Gunn why Star-Lord says if you had a black light, this plate would look like a Jackson Pollock painting. And he <laughs> goes, he goes, ask your dad, right? But the problem is the dad's not going to have an answer for that. There are a lot of like body adult jokes that if a kid asks about it, the parent's just like, oh, I don't know what to do here. So I thought of this joke because I always think of the incredible recovery that my mother had when I asked about that, which is we got to see Shrek, and it was early when Shrek came out. Uh, and, you know, it was like the, one of those early like pre-release, whatever the hell it was. So I'm like 10 years old when Shrek comes out. And there's a bit in Shrek where they walk by and they see uh, Shrek and Donkey see Lord Farquaad's castle, his big tower. And Shrek goes, Eh, compensating for something to Donkey. And Donkey doesn't get it. And I remember like leaning over to my mom and going, what, what, what is that? 
what's that mean? Mo- mostly because as a kid, I didn't even know what the word, as 10 years old, I didn't even know what the word compensating meant. So I was just like, what's the joke here? And my mom goes, oh, it's because he's so short. He's making up for being so short. And I just bought that entirely. And it wasn't until like 12 years old, I'm watching Shrek again. I'm like, oh, it's a penis joke. But props to props to my folks for having that quick recovery there to be like, I've got an explanation that'll shut the kid up and we can just move on. You know, we can just we can just shut the kid up and move on. Props well, to that. You know, you're not doing that wrong. with the finger. What? They weren't wrong. No. And like, you can't do that with a fingerprints joke. With a fingerprints joke, you just have to go. Ah! But, you know, props to them recovered on the far quad. Just go, uh, uh, look at the minions. <laughs> Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week when you're missing out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, we're joined once again by comedian David Bluffman to discuss the 1932 film Trouble in Paradise. Our guest today is a writer, actor, and improviser, as seen on Kaleidoscope, Hollywood, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and The Chris Gethard Show. Joining us once again, David Bloodband is here on the show. David, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, fellas. Thanks for having me on again. It's an honor to be back. Welcome back. It's an honor to be back finally uh, in person, or rather, I can finally see you guys. I was going to make that point. This is the first time we've had cameras on for this. First visual episode. Uh, sorry about that in advance. Having to look at, <laughs> well, not me. I'm a good looking fellow, but sorry, you have to look at Mike. Yeah, that's fair. I gotta say though, uh, I was a little confused looking at the scheduling of everything because last week we did an episode on my darling Clementine, which was close to a John Houston. There's something similar there, and then I'm like, wait, we're recording with David Bluffman, and we're not doing a John Houston thing. What's going on? so i was i was just it was there a scheduling mistake does he know he's not doing john houston did did mike and kyle write the wrong guest name in the episode like what's going on but you know hey you know as long as you're willing to be on the show even if it's houstonless uh we're happy to have you look i'll I'll take what i can get we'll make it work it's like like how they say uh what they used to say on project uh runway it's a make it work moment It is, a, it is a make it work moment. Uh, you know, let's let's try to tie it in together. I kind of see uh, our main con man. I, I feel like he's got a little bit of John Houston energy to him. I feel like if John Houston was a little uh, lower class, he'd probably be bumming around in Europe and just uh, just robbing people and just being like, no, 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 actually, uh, I need to look at your tonsils bonk someone on the head and then rob them. Uh, I I would counter, if I'm going to tie it in, I would say, honestly, I love John Huston's films, but Maltese Falcon, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, all of them, every one of them would be uh, improved if a befuddled Edward Everett Horton just showed up and got cuckolded in them. Like, I just want him popping in the middle of Maltese Falcon going, oh my goodness, I'm in the wrong place, and just bouncing. Oh my god, Sam, did, did you know that I was trying to see this woman before she came into your <laughs> o- 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 office? Oh my goodness. Love that man. I definitely feel like if, if John Houston could have made a comedy, like a, like an all-out, like a full-blown comedy, it would be something like this. This 100% feels like something he definitely loved watching. 
This is before he's yeah. directing, but he's like bumming around doing writing jobs. He's, you know, so he's and his father's, you know, an actor. So he's definitely into the arts. He definitely saw this movie and he was definitely like, oh, yes, a movie about lovable shitheads just robbing other lovable shitheads in Europe. This is my jam. This is yeah, this is like if John Houston got hold of like a Billy Wilder script. Well, and also yeah. consider that when we think about it, when it came to American filmmaking, and I'm hardly unique in, in saying this. I think I, I heard somebody quote it on the Criterion some point, but oh it was it was Jean Renoir said it actually. On the Criterion Disc for Trouble in Paradise, Peter Bogdanovich is introducing the movie. Sure. And it will not surprise you that Peter Bogdanovich is talking about conversations he had with a with an old great filmmaker. Uh-huh. You know? Not a not a huge surprise. Um and Bogdanovich uh, is talking, and he talks about Jean Renoir, and he says that Renoir's assessment of Lubitsch was basically American filmmaking was all copying D.W. Griffith and all trying to, like, looking at D.W. Griffith as the model for, like, what an, we didn't call him auteurs then, but what an auteur director is. And when Ernst Lubitsch comes along, he not only brings a, a more European sensibility, but he is much more of a subtle and deliberate stylist. And pretty much anybody that would become one of the great filmmakers of the next generation, of the 40s, the 50s, what have you, were looking at what Lubitsch was doing and going, oh, I want to be doing that. Like, I want to be, you know, in, in a way, uh, not to be pat, but like, Lubitsch is kind of like a, a, an almost velvet underground kind of thing of you're just like, oh, everybody from all these disparate places was still looking at what he was doing and going, oh, that's clever. I could take that. I could take this. I could take that. As opposed to Griffith, who, uh, I mean, b- besides the argument about Griffith not being nearly as much of an innovator as people claim he is, D.W. Griffith is not a subtle guy at all. There's mm-hmm. nothing, you know, if there's symbolism in D.W. Griffith's films, it's unavoidable symbolism, right? Mm-hmm. It's a mother rocking a baby in a cradle representing innocence. But Lubitsch is doing all these little things and all these little tricks and getting away with so much, especially because he starts out pre-code. And mm. obviously, Trouble in Paradise is a perfect example of a pre-code movie. Uh, I thought it was the most pre-code movie. And then I watched in prep for this Design for Living, the movie Earth yeah. makes right after this, which is maybe the horniest movie uh, of the 30s. It's pretty um, yeah, yeah. It's, pretty, it's pretty great. <laughs> I'm watching it. Uh, we'll talk about uh, Trouble in Paradise, but I'm watching Design for Living. And so they set up the premise like Miriam Hopkins, who I'm now a huge fan of, uh, can't decide between Gary Cooper or Frederick March. Uh, so they're all going to live together. And I'm like, uh, I get what they're implying. And then she turns around and goes, so we'll live together. We'll all be in the same place. I'll be your friend. I'll be your muse. But no sex. And I just went, oh, oh, they just said it. Just outright, <laughs> just, just, just said the words. You have to imagine that Will Hayes viewed Ernst Lubitsch as perhaps his mortal enemy. Like Ernst Lubitsch was the sure, Joker sure. to Will Hayes' Batman. He was he he was Stone Cold to his Vince McMahon. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. Lubitsch represents the like European sensibility of filmmaking that's soon going to take over Hollywood. Yeah, and, yeah. like the 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 just. I mean, because also like because I think Lubitsch definitely brings something so fresh visually and stylistically you gotta remember this is the time when like you know Lubitsch is coming out of the German filmmaking scene 
same generation as, you know, as Billy Wilder, his buddy who would write scripts for him, his same generation as Robert Siad Mack, who directed The Killers. And they're all like, are learning from Fritz Lang and they're, and, you know, have already are steeped into the expressionist tradition. And they, they're having to use low budget techniques to skirt around, like just to get their movies made. And just why, I hadn't seen this one before. I hadn't seen um, uh, Trouble in Paradise before. Uh, and it was the first thing I noticed was just compared to the other code movies that are on there that are, you know, the, the other non-Lubitsch code movies, just how visually interesting everything looks, just from transition to the way the camera moves to the set dressing of everything. And just like how, yeah. And just like how Hans Dreyer just like, like, uh, dress the shit out of everything here. Cause some of it comes out of the fact that like he was dealing with constraints right like uh his his lead actor was missing a leg so he couldn't shoot him walking much which explains like why so much of um what's the actor's name marshall something yeah marshall uh oh, crap now i have it written down i just herbert marshall forget. herbert marshall yes as as uh, as our own guest on Montesquieu. uh yes. yeah th- this is the reason why he's like in so many static shots just standing over and they use a double when he's running some, upstairs, yeah. I was yeah. going to say, it leads to some pretty funny, like, almost like you'd see in a sketch comedy thing today of, like, well, that's clearly not him running up the stairs. <laughs> right, 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 like, right, right. He immediately closes the front door, and he's halfway up the stairs already. And, like, okay, that's a good bit. That's that's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not like I was going to come in and say this wasn't a visually interesting movie, because, you know, it's a very visually interesting movie. But I think the thing that really impressed me and i think is what made lubitsch so uh influential to a lot of filmmakers after him and it's something that ties him in with billy wilder who he'd work with and who made movies very similar to this and ninochka and other things is that this is an amazing script yeah and that's i feel like this is not to be like oh well old movies are bad kind of rant or whatever but like you know we're five years from the jazz singer you know, cinema up to this point has been dominated not by their scripts, by their visuals. Right. So, yeah, D.W. Griffiths was influential because he was the guy coming up with the craziest visuals that you can imagine in this early right. art. And then it's like, oh, well, we can do the visual stuff now, but people are talking in these movies now. We can get a little more. And I guess this is what the European uh, influence is with, uh, you know all the guys you mentioned, like Lubitsch and others, this feels more influenced by, you know, literature and the written word than, which even to this day is an American thing, spectacle. You know, it was all about spectacle. And this is, yeah, it's a visual, very good looking movie, but it is not spectacle. It is dependent on the written word and how the performers, you know, deliver these wonderfully constructed words and jokes and every and you know all of it that in in 32 not even just because of the pre-code stuff just for like wow five years ago we were blown away by al jolson singing on a screen and now we have people essentially doing more elevated intellectual not to denigrate it or anything but like more intellectual versions of vaudeville routines they're doing wordplay 
goofy like things where they're just teetering right on the edge of saying something filthy, but they don't, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. well, singing is a, singing is a great point, Tom, because it, it, that brings in another important element when talking about Lubitsch at this time, which is, you know, you mentioned like, oh, he gets them to deliver the line. You know, it's about how to deliver the lines. It's the rhythm. And yeah, the yeah. reason the rhythm's so important is it's, it's worth remembering. Yes. The jazz singer is the first picture that has, well, it's the first popular picture that has sync sound, but the jazz singer is not all talking or all singing. The first all singing, all dancing, you know, all talking musical spectacle is the love parade, which yeah. Ernst Lubitsch directs with Maurice Chevalier. And there's yeah. actually most of the films he's making at this point up until this movie are Maurice Chevalier musicals. Now, obviously we haven't done a Lubitsch Chevalier musical on the show, but we did last season do um, Love Me Tonight, which is the Ruben oh, wow. William Chevalier. And those required that same kind of rhythm and that same kind of you know pattern delivery. This is Lubitsch's first film. He obviously works on like two and a half. He makes two and a half films this year. Hmm. Um, he, makes, uh, he also makes a drama this year, I think called Broken Lullaby, which is an admirable attempt. And he also does a segment for an anthology film called If I Had a Million, which yeah, is a, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's an almost entirely forgotten movie that only David Bluffman, myself, and like 20 other Letterboxd users have apparently seen. Um, it's on the Criterion uh, Paramount pre-code collection right now. Yes, yeah. And it took me a minute to realize, I didn't realize it was an anthology until I saw the part with Charles Lawton, which is yeah. supposed to be like uh, famous. He like won the Academy Award for that role, I think, right? Like Well, it was it was it was that they separated that segment out and started running it as its own film. Yes. So the yes, Lawton that's segment. It. That's it's obviously a, the best one. Yeah, Tom, to give you a sense, dude, it's good. if I had a million, it's just an anthology film about this rich old man who decides like I'm gonna give my fortune away to random people. I'm just gonna pick mm -hmm. random people and give them a million dollars, and then they just let a bunch of directors come up with what do you want somebody to do with a million dollars? Um I, there's, they're not all great. The second best segment of the film is W.C. Fields and his wife deciding they're just going to crash cars into people for fun. Right, right. Um, but the best yeah, one is... Uh, too. Yes, and, uh, right, and, yeah. and Charles Lawton's segment, like David describes, is just... It's Charles Lawton as like a, a menial worker at some you know, business. He gets, uh, he gets informed that he's getting a million dollars. I think he gets a letter or... Oh, the guy comes to see him and just goes, oh, you're getting a million dollars. And Charles Lawton gets up from his desk and he walks upstairs and he goes to his secretary and wordlessly just kind of, she waves him through and he goes up and I think he gets to another secretary who waves him through and he just keeps going up, up and up higher in the building and he finally makes his way all the way to the office of essentially the CEO of the company. And he walks in, opens the door, looks at the very busy boss and just goes and leaves. <laughs> and that's the whole segment. That is Ernst Lubitsch in a nutshell. Is like it's really just about like he understands the rhythm of it and the way to sell that gag, and that all comes out of that musical background. And I think that when you watch Trouble in Paradise, you know it's been described as a musical with no singing. I mean, there is an opera sequence and there's a you know a jingle being sung at one point, but it really is. It's like it's every element of the musical comedy, right. except for the songs. It seems like he was the first guy, maybe one of the first guys to realize that, like, yeah, like, the, there's a rhythm to music. And wait, 
if we're making musicals, we got to have a rhythm to the editing. Oh, editing is, there's a rhythm to that. There's a musicality to the editing. Right. So like, instead of just having bare bones, kind of just functional editing, let's use that to heighten what's going on, which is, you know, I'm sure there were other guys who probably thought like, oh yeah, music and editing, blah, 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 we could do that. But just because you're the first guy to maybe think of it, doesn't mean you're Ernst Lubitsch, you know, he, he, he got it and he did it, you know, and this is if it wasn't so clearly filmed like almost a hundred years ago at this point with a beat up film print and rougher transitions than we might be used to seeing the film transition to another film reel, whatnot. Sure. It's, sure. it's so incredibly modern. We, a lot of people talk about comedies these days. They don't have a visual style in anything. It's not great that you could post, you know, pull most comedies that are made today, right. which are really pretty much only made on Netflix at this point. Sure. Um, and compare and contrast them to a movie made in 1932 and say, you barely look more modern than this 91-year-old movie. You might want to rethink some things because this guy has made a movie that's aged a lot better than your two-and-a-half-hour improv fest, which everyone's going to forget in a week. Sorry, Judd Apatow, but nobody's watching the bubble. Just to just to double back a couple a couple points of just like what uh, in the in the newly explored realm of the sound era, you have like the thirties is the is the first generation where the screenwriter becomes a celebrity. The screenwriters like people are into like this is when that ratatat dialogue. And that musicality of the, you know, the comedic delivery is really popularized. Like, this is the same way Preston Sturgis wrote. You know, Lloyd Bacon had made movies around this time that were very... Like, this is this is the same... My favorite movie from the 30s, My Man Godfrey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where there are just these really tight scripts, class differences, mostly, that people are hungry for in like early depression era America. They want like, they want to, they want to laugh and they want to see rich people be made fools of and uh, to be subject to ridicule and to be scrutinized. They want to see like really smart commentary of what's happening around to like add on to what you were saying about the, the musicality of everything and, and, and Lubitsch's musical background. And like, yeah, this is also the, this is your, your, your we still are making gold diggers movies. These are still like, you know, we're coming out of the, the you know, like, uh, like you said, like everything is expressionist or not expressionist, but like it's theater actors playing to the back of house on screen in like in silent movie makeup. And now we have, we're, we're really, only starting to approach more naturalistic acting for the first time. Like I agree with, I, I, I agree with you, Tom. Like there's so many comedies that don't I that don't work right now that are not they don't they don't feel half as fresh or half as funny or half as, you know, tight as a movie from like ninety plus years ago. And I, I, I will say, and, and uh, we have to read the statement from the registry. I think we've, we've gotten so far. No, this is, 
no, it's not your fault. Like, all of us dove right in, and I just noticed. I'm like, oh, this is probably the longest we've gone before the setup. Before we say anything more about Trouble in Paradise, uh, let's talk about what the Library of Congress had to say. Here's what the National Film Registry says about Trouble in Paradise. The Lubitsch touch, an easy comedic elegance which characterized the films of director Ernst Lubitsch, is epitomized in this frothy gem starring Herbert Marshall and Miriam Hopkins as professional thieves who fall in love while plundering the Riviera. Saucy dialogue delivered with mock melodrama runs rampant amidst the sophisticated promiscuity when Marshall is bewitched by the wealthy Parisian he intends to fleece, Kay Francis, and the thieves find they're not as thick as they thought. David, you're absolutely right to mention the, the Great Depression being a factor in this. In fact, it's more of a factor in this film than modern audiences realize. Um, one of the things, when Tom's talking about like comedies that don't work, I think there are so many comedies from the last like 20 or 30 years that don't hold up, in part because they're relying so heavily on pop culture references and things, you know, things that, yeah. that date them immediately. This movie also has pop culture references, and we've talked about other classic comedies that it's not like they're bereft of pop culture references. It's just the fact that even though we don't get them anymore, hmm. there's still enough gags in the movie to sustain us. Back in season one, uh, Riley Soliner was on talking about Modern Times with us, hmm. and there's a lot, I mean, Modern Times is, is a timeless comedy, and yet there's gags in that uh, at one point, the main actress like puts a knife in her mouth and looks like a pirate, and that's a direct reference to uh, the Black Pirate right. starring Douglas Fairbanks. No one's getting that now. Similarly, with um, with Herbert Marshall's character, he has a line in the film where he says, Pros he goes, oh, don't be down. Prosperity is just around the corner. Yes, yeah. And we could see that as just a line, and honestly, when I watched it, I'm like, that's just a line, but then you dig into it. Prosperity is just around the corner is a phrase that Herbert Hoover was saying yeah. in reference to how government's not going to be able to pull us out of the Depression. And so if you're watching it in 32, it's, it's essentially like, you know, somebody referencing, I don't know, Kofefe or something. Yeah, no, it's very like, it's a very hashtag uh, of the moment thing yeah. to say. Like, it's also, it's also, that's a very, it's a, it's the same exact line that's in um, My Man God. Yes, yeah. The top of the movie. It's just one, you know, it's like Mike said, so many movies now rely on pop culture references as the joke instead of using the moment itself to fuel the comedy. This uses the moment to fuel the comedy instead of commenting on the moment. You know, it's clear. Yeah. You, know, you don't have to be a, a real historian to realize that this is set in an era of economic despair. You know, the, sure, sure. so many scenes of, you know, oh, you're not cutting... You got to cut back on salaries, but not on our salaries, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, it's, you don't need, to, but it, it's moving, it's using it to fuel everything else instead of like, you know, like I saw, you know, the Super Mario Brothers movie this weekend. Cute sure. movie. It was fun, but it does that thing that the Illumination movies do, which is always annoying, more so in this one, which is just like, Oh yeah, we're doing the Mario Kart scene. What what should we do? I know. Let's play Thunderstruck by ACDC. Why? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, what, what, no, what, one that's annoying to me because I just want to hear Mario music. I'm a grown man, and I'm gonna admit that I just need to yeah. hear Mario music. Sure. And sure. two, I, I don't think the eight year olds that are seeing this movie really have the biggest interest in little Australian men dressed like schoolboys. That's just me. I don't know. Mike eats burgers that are branded by young people. He might know better than me. That's such a weird description without context. Somebody's going to be so confused. 
Yes, Tom, I ordered Mr. Beast's burger, okay? I am a I am a journalist and I'm required to know about these things. So <laughs> you, you you could have just said Mr. Beast made a burger. Hmm. He made a burger. How interesting. Didn't need to eat it. I'm a thorough journalist. Uh but like contrasting to like, you know, a lot of the other movies that haven't aged well. Uh, a few weeks ago, I watched, I rewatched Wag the Dog. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that feels so, not in a lot of ways, but very much in the, this is a Clinton-era movie, but it never says Clinton. Sure. It never specifies anything that would lock you into the 90s other than some, like, cell phone jokes, like, moments. Not even jokes, just like, oh, do you think we get reception here? Whatever. But it just uses that political era to get to something that has aged incredibly well it aged so well it came out i oh, think wow. two weeks before the monica Lewinsky shit started dropping uh yeah Damn. so it, it, it's this is one of the earliest examples in the sound era of don't lock yourself into a time by saying everything that people will laugh at for a week now, use it as fuel for something to get at something deeper and truer, which is it's fun to see European criminals rob European rich people. I don't know. That's that's well, that's timeless. It, it is. And I, I will also say just on the on the subject of just like everything in, in its time and within its context. And, you know, this is a movie about a gentleman thief in mm -hmm. pickpocket. And this is an era yeah. when that was when like. You know, we are we are we are still in the we're still in the era of like post you know very cheap genre fiction being pumped out and like you know there's Arsène oh, Lupin and all that. Yes, right? yeah, yeah. There's exactly, exactly. The gentleman thief Mas, is yeah. a very like is the the gentleman thief is a very like uh, recognizable archetype in fiction at this point. Still, it it feels more arcane now, but it. It's almost like I I I wonder like it's 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 almost like they should they should be making a movie instead of just like a super like if you're gonna make a Super Mario Brothers movie, let's like just make fucking Trouble in Paradise with Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> well, I mean, I, with those I, characters, just like have a story that's kind of similar. I mean, right, I so will... obviously Mario is the uh, Gaston character. Yes. Because uh, I need to dig uh, into this. Uh, the two men that are being cucked by the uh, the heiress, obviously Wario and Waluigi. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, obvious. Yeah, exactly. and, and in that case, Edward Everett Horton is the Waluigi and, uh, and Ruggles, Charles Ruggles is the Wario, right? Obviously. Um, yeah. Bowser is Bowser is the guy at the heiress's company who's clearly a thief. <laughs> Uh, that I mean, he's Bowser. Uh, what 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 else do we got? Um, we got Luigi. Luigi is uh uh hmm. Who would be Luigi? I mean, I unfortunately, I would argue, I would counter that at this point, it's possible that Luigi is the Mariam Hopkins character. Oh, that's you know good, what I mean. Yes, that's yeah. the original pairing. Hey, we were both lowly plumbers. Yeah. Now you've found this rich princess. Right. Right. I don't want yeah, you breaking up our right. thing. Right, yeah. and then Kate Francis is the Princess enough. Peach. Yeah. I yeah. I gotta say, there's very few original things out there anymore. You know, uh, as culture grows, it becomes more derivative. But I dare say, this is the first time people have dared to say, "Where would the Mario characters fit in Ernst Lubitsch's Trouble in Paradise?" I'm willing <laughs> to say, 
Now, well, I... And that is why we are breaking new ground and yeah. why there is no other podcast like us. And if you're not listening to us, uh, you know, listen, fuck yourself. I mean, that's, how, that's how we get on those iTunes charts, baby. That's why we're there. Um, I will say the other thing about that, we're talking about the, the time period. This movie does feature one of my favorite character gags from old movies that we don't get anymore, mm. which is pre-Cold War communist jokes. Insofar as like <laughs> after the Cold War, communists and Marxists officially become like big scary. Mm-hmm. And the funnier thing for me is, and it happens throughout like twenties, thirties, and forties comedies. Um, like obviously Ninoshka is a great example too. Yeah. Um, but one of my favorites is there's an old there's a football musical called Pigskin Parade. Yes, that again seven living people have seen. Um, <laughs> but it's a football musical. And one of the running gags in it is that there is one, like, Marxist on campus. And again, as opposed to how anybody with communist leanings is depicted after the Cold War, this is a clear archetype they're using, which is that guy who's read too many books, who shows up, and no matter what the conversation is, shows up and goes, well, fellas, Antonin Gramsci had thoughts on this, and then they, like, throw him in a trash can and knock him away. And it's, it's a... It's a good gag insofar as, like, when you look at Depression-era comedies, one of the things they get at that no comedy that tries to deal with class now does is, like, comedies that try and be class satires now often try to have a specific perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Where they try and go, like, well, this is actually the correct answer. Whereas, like, what the Depression-era comedies do so well, whether it's My Man Godfrey or whatever, is mostly just going, most of these people are frauds. Most of these right. people are bullshit. You know, I mean, like, people often, when they bring up that, uh, people use that uh, that uh, comment about uh, temporarily embarrassed millionaires to describe Americans, and it's attributed to Don- John Steinbeck, but that's not John Steinbeck's quote. John mm. Steinbeck's actual quote is him saying, I've, I, you know, we have no, um, no one in America admits they're proletariat. Like, he goes, mm. you know, uh, some of the most vocal socialists I know uh, chase people off their lawns and don't give anyone a dime if no one's around. And he's basically talking about, like, he, it was a broader example of, like, yeah, man, like, I'm out here chronicling the Dust Bowl. Right. I'm also getting big checks from my books, and I'm not pretending otherwise. He goes, but the richest people come up to me and go, yeah, I have solidarity with the cause. No, you don't. You have too much money to have solidarity with the cause. Sure, sure. You're, you're telling me you feel for Tom Jode, and then when Tom Jode is on your lawn, you call the cops on him. You're a mm-hmm. fraud. I think that that's what this gets so well is like, it's essentially, it's not just a satire of, oh, rich people are dumb. That's us. That's a lame target at this point, right? Like we right, can right, make right. that joke, but it's, it's a lame target at this point. You know, that's, it, there's a reason why Adam McKay's satires don't land as strongly as he thinks they do. This gets more at the idea of just like, oh, everyone's kind of deceiving themselves in one way or another, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm including our main thieves, right? Yeah. Yes. Including Herbert Marshall and Miriam Hopkins at various points who are completely lying to themselves. And Kay Francis, who you arguably throughout the film are going, does she know she's getting scammed? Like, you, you know, does she Kay care? Francis, man, that, uh, this performance, I ha- like, I, I, I'm kind of new to this, uh, to um, her filmography. And I got and. She's so funny. Like this role is very, very funny and very like. I feel like this movie 
has been recreated many times over in different genres. It's 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 sort of dirty rotten scoundrels, but it's also sort of the hustle, and it's and it's kind of Bonnie and Clyde, and it's like it it just plays with this idea of uh, these your our two anti heroes trying to just get to the next biggest scam and like trying to pull but but this one ends with it working out <laughs> and it's like very funny just from that last frame of just like wow it really it really all kind of worked out for him and the other dynamic that this has that the others don't i mean it has two things that i think it does very well that those other comedies you mentioned maybe don't always get around to which is most times when you're doing a thing about like you know these two uh you know uh, low-level crooks, and one of them gets drawn into a life of wealth and privilege, and the other one's trying to pull them back. And all that. They get two things. They do two things that this movie doesn't do. One is they often posit it as, well, the rich woman that the man is now falling for. You know, he's got his uh his partner in crime gal, who's like the you know the down for anything you know rough and tumble type, and the rich girl is pure and virtuous and pure of heart mm. and this and that. And it's like, you know, the implication that often comes up in those comedies, especially when you do the, you know, the, the opposite genders and all of that is essentially like, you know, the guy having a, you know, this, this complex about her being, you know, that the, the, you know, his, his old flame. Yeah. They were hooking up all the time, but this girl, she's pure and, and virginal and innocent and this and that. And that is not Kay Francis's character right. at all. In fact, nope. so much of her attitude and her attitude toward him is not just, oh, yeah, we're sleeping together. But her vibe is, yeah, I know it's good. I know I'm good at this. And that's what keeps you coming back, which is right. wild. And the other element I think it does that's so fucking smart is from the get-go, they tell you she doesn't care about money. Right, right. right. Not just that she's irresponsible with money. She doesn't give a shit about money. She which doesn't means, think about it. Yeah. Which means you take out that cheap component. That happens in so many uh, mistaken identity comedies. Like our, you know, our we we got we know the guys. We all you know know the the, the blank check guys, Griffin and David. And they always talk about the problem with so many rom coms is they have to have that second act where she finds out about the deception and she's distraught and this and that. You never worry about that here in terms of like she doesn't give a shit about money, right? So you never have to worry that. Even if he pulls off the heist, you never have to worry about her caring. You know, it doesn't bother her at all. So it takes out that tension and you can just enjoy the game of it, right? Because it is just a game mm -hmm. to all of them, which mm -hmm. I think is, you know, when we talk about these modern versions, whether it's a Dirty Rotten Scoundrels or what have you, like, they, they, they always include those beats. Of, yeah. Well, this is the pure of heart and, well, they're the good world and I don't know if I belong in the good world or this and that, you know. Whereas yeah. with this, it's all it's all a game it's formulaic it's, def it's definitely something that became formulaic and i think the formula sort of solidified with one way over time just based on like you know again this is like we're we're, we're coming out of the roaring 20s uh there's just like a different sensibilities and like you know imogene sarah smith on the uh, criterion channel has a great um you know um introduction video to this uh to the pre-code series up there and and she talks about how it was like well, these movies are often 
you know, there's so there's so many female driven movies from this period that are challenging the projected, you know, quote unquote norms or standards up, put upon women uh, and are like, you know, so many, so many movies uh, from this time feature women who are like, you know, free spirited and uh, are not like, uh, you know, they have agency. They're not subjugated to like, you know, the stereotypical roles or whatever they're very like free and a lot of fun characters like there's there's what there's there's carol lombard in in my man godfrey you've got k francis you've got um miriam uh, hopkins in design for living obviously you've got mary you've got miriam hopkins in this and and design for living you got may west movie yeah you've got like a lot you a gene arthur you've got a lot of movies about women that are trying to uh, make it on their own and like in, in in a man's world and and like take that idea and flip it on its head well i i think there's also something to uh it being a you know depression era movie and that it's it's almost subtextually saying like it's okay to rob her because she's <laughs> she's too big to fail yeah. Yes, yes. Yes. There's no like. There's no way us poor people who are you know struggling for work are going to be able to topple these big businesses. They're going to survive. They'll cut all our jobs and say, "Oh, things are tough. We're tightening the purse strings." But they'll give themselves bonuses. They'll buy hundred twenty five thousand dollar franc uh, handbags and mm-hmm. lose it and offer up a reward for it. But you're never going to topple them. So it it there's something innocent to their whole scheme because like mike said she doesn't care and she doesn't care because she doesn't have to care yeah because like everyone that's that rich in the world they're never gonna not be rich and so them just ripping her off for what ends up being a hundred grand plus the handbag Mm -hmm. uh they were going for almost close to a million she didn't give a shit. She was going to be fine. She would have just she would have just had another round of layoffs and mm-hmm. she would have she would have just been like whatever. Well, I got to go cuck some majors but, and naval officers again. But the other the other element too in this and David's point about like those pre-code liberated women kind of idea and this shows up in last season's film we talked about Love Me Tonight too. An element of Kay Francis's character is that she married rich, right? Yeah. She had a yeah. husband she married rich and there is this vibe that comes up in a lot of these films from this pre-code era where it's not just about a wealthy woman born into wealth like if we see that woman who's like from the aristocracy she's the women in the marx brothers movies who are getting clowned on Mm -hmm. but there's this specific archetype of like this woman who did not come from money necessarily she is virtuous you know she is whatever she married wealthy because she did what she had to do she did what she had to do to survive. That guy's dead. And the mm-hmm. dynamic they always set up is, well, shouldn't she get to have a little fun? Right? right like, right. whether it's Chevalier in most of his movies where it's like, oh, this is a young, sexy widow who was married to an old man. Shouldn't she get to have fun? Or Kate Francis in this where it's like, yes, she doesn't want Edward Everett or, or, uh, or Charles Ruggles because she wants a guy that can, you know, that, that, I mean, yes, he cares about makeup. He cares about all the finer things in life as well. But also, it's a sexual component. And these other guys are yes. essentially eunuchs. Like to David's point about these these liberated women in this particular era, 
even the original script for Trouble in Paradise, she was even shown as even more kind of virtuous. Mm-hmm. Where there was a scene, you remember how the old woman shows up before the the Marxist shows up and starts yelling in Russian, which I did not have time. I wanted to ask my partner if she could translate what they were saying for me, and uh, I she did not. But um, when the old woman shows up and she offers her what is very clearly not her purse, mm-hmm. in the original script, Kate Francis takes the purse anyway and gives her the reward, just because mm. she knows she's on hard times, and sure. I think that. Lubitsch decided like that was a little too much, you know, uh, but yeah, but there is just something to that where it's like, it's not just that she's rich. It's the specific type of rich where it's like, they've got money, but they're still one of us, right? Mm-hmm. This era will still punish people who were born into privilege, right? That are unaware of their privilege. In fact, Miriam Hopkins, um, I don't know if anybody here has seen it. If not, seek it out. I'm, and uh, hint, hint, I'll be talking about it later in the episode too. Uh, Miriam Hopkins did a film the year after this that is uh, that is called The Story of Temple Drake. Okay. That was so scandalous in its day that it's essentially the movie that is credited with getting the Hays Code enforced. Uh, it's not a comedy. It's a drama. Uh, and it's, in fact, like, when you read about what the original script was that the Hayes office came in and was like, you can't show this. You do sit back and go, oh, my God, yeah. They could not have filmed this. Uh, Story of Temple Drake is kind of the opposite of the K. Francis character. Like this, It's about a, well, a well-to-do judge's granddaughter. It's based on a William Faulkner story. And mm. she goes out, and she's carousing on the town, and she goes out with all of these guys, and she always flirts with them, but she never sleeps with them. And one night she's out, and the guy has a drunk driving accident and crashes his car. Uh, and they get stranded at some low-down, low-class building with a bunch of hoodlums and mobsters there, and then one of the mobsters violently sexually assaults her. Oh, God. And in the movie, it's upsetting, because in the movie, they're pretty blunt about it. Apparently, the original script for this film that Miriam Hopkins was on board for involved her being violated by an ear of corn. And then the script called for us seeing the corn afterward. And the Hayes office went, absolutely not. Which I'll, I dare say is the one time I go, you're on it, Hayes, Hayes office. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm, 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 I'm kind of on their side with that one. That's, that's one where they, they did that. I'm glad they didn't let that one that is, through. So. Yeah, that, but, but you, it, so what I'm saying is like, and that was, it's very much a morality play. It's very much oh, yeah. like going, hey, you don't understand the ways of the world. I think that, it's important to note with Kay Francis that even though it is still a liberated woman thing, even in this time in pre-code, there was still this unspoken thing of, of, in terms of class of like, if somebody's rich, they're only on the level if they came from where we're at, right? Yeah, sure. Like, even in the Depression, there's this interesting thing in these films of like, which I don't know if we necessarily have it now when we're dealing with our modern day class struggle, which is this idea of like, look, the generationally wealthy people all suck and they can go to hell. I'm not going to begrudge anybody who was one of us and got theirs. Mm. That seems to be a prevailing thing in, in depression era films is like this idea of, you know, nobody's necessarily sitting back and doing the, you know, well, why isn't Kay Francis donating all of her wealth to the soup kitchens? It's like, oh, listen, listen, she got out. She got, mm. go to, go to town, buy your bags. We don't care. You know, you were one of us. You, you did what you had to do. You know what I'm saying? 
Yeah, no, I definitely. It's it's uh, if it's definitely like a th- it, it's definitely a smart choice to not have her be a little bit more sympathetic. I think just because of a tonal, it just it wouldn't fit. It's a little too the the uh, giving her the reward money is a little bit too earnest of a of a game move uh to fit with the tone of the movie it 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 it, it makes it just just i mean just like uh my man godfrey it's it's funnier to see them be more broad and like have more broader value well it also just it also just makes her more it makes the pairing of her and yes. gaston make more sense because at a certain point you realize oh she's conning him yeah because she just wants she wants that dick. Yeah. But yeah, then yeah, she yeah, wants yeah. she wants the dick so she can blue ball him mm-hmm. because that's the game she likes to play. She wants to drive men crazy. You know, it just makes her the perfect foil. And you 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 just up until the very end, you're just like, fuck, maybe he should stay with her. Cause she is right. enough of a weird shithead just like him that their weird kinks might be they might fit. Even if it's not exactly there, not both pickpockets, there's still a weirdness to them that makes sense. But then you get to that it's final scene. Kind of like, it's a classic kind of relationship that you see where it's just like, all right, well, these people, these guys are so weirdly broken in their own different ways, and they sh- probably shouldn't be together. But, you know, right now, them being together keeps them sort of out of trouble a little bit like just like yeah well all right they're they're all they're gonna be okay for like i guess right now just but it's still not like super healthy but i also want to just bring up the point of like these characters these 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 female characters that we're talking about these 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 rich women who are um you know uh you know these these rich women who are again all mostly written by men uh trying to like drive men crazy or these rich women who are um exploring different as like you know these, these are all again these are all characters from uh literature that were very popular at the time these are like these are f scott fitzgerald characters uh they're it's these are all like you know character this is jordan baker it's yeah. uh, it's like it's these these characters these these very exciting for the time, uh, especially female characters who are challenging the social norms of the time, or the social, you know, whatever you want to call them at the time. And that is for an audience that doesn't like, you know, like we said before, is coming out of the silent era where we don't see those characters. It's very exciting. And they're dry. And, the, the, and, you know, producers obviously know these are the things that are driving people into the seats you'd like to see characters like that and it's necessarily and it's also you know with Kay francis the other thing that this does that's so clever is it would be very easy to write her as where the gag is she's rich so she's out of touch right Mm -hmm. what lubich does so well throughout this film is you could read her as that but you're not sure and the perfect example is she has an incredible line where when Miriam Hopkins is playing all modest and pretending to be just like a normal secretary, and she's like, well, I have to take care of brother because mother died. And Kate Francis goes, that's the trouble with mothers. You just start liking it. Just when you start liking them, they die. Or something yeah. along those lines. And what's so great about that line is that just like her character throughout the film, you don't know 
is she that clueless, right? That she says something that's so that to a normal person would be fucked up or has she been through so much and does she have such a dark sense of humor about it all that she knows how fucked up that joke is and she's intentionally doing you know what i, I mean would, like yeah i i think to i i kind of chalk that up as to like another like to me is like okay like it, it, there's lots of lines like that in my in my man godfrey as well yeah. or even in in to be or not to be just the clueless privilege of just like like uh, you know i don't really poli- like i don't really believe in policing what i say yeah. you see these people now like you know you know this type of attitude that's just like they'll just say stuff that sounds totally insane and they're oblivious to it and that's almost like more real than a lot of other eccentricities about these characters like i, I feel like you know uh like hey francis has a lot of lines like that obviously like sullivan's travels is just filled yeah. with lines like that this is a whole movie about that and or I, I i do also want to bring up back to that scene of just like when when miriam hopkins who's so funny oh who's so ridiculously funny in this movie and she does that thing that i love of like my favorite type of con in a movie with cons is pretending to be a dork yeah or like a nerd or like you know some sort of uh, some sort of waif of some sort, just be like, well, well my brother, you sick, and just like, uh, and just like you know, the big glasses and everything. It's 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 very. I feel like you see that in like, I mean, you see that in like, um, in uh, uh, Bogart does it in The Big Sleep. Yeah, yeah. You you also see it in like stuff where, like it's it's a thing that carries over to to today because you also see it in like fucking um, what was it, Hobbs and Shaw with yes. Vanessa Kirby. Like he's just like, yeah. um, hello, I like two tickets for the it's like very like, okay, oh, this is a, this is an enduring bit that people do in con. And like well, see, in the in the, in the con artist world. My my favorite part of that whole scene is just how clearly Kay Francis is just like, No, no, you leave at five o'clock because <laughs> in her mind, I'm getting that dick tonight and you're not getting in the way. Just the look of unabashed horniness is so just, uh, it's so goddamn funny. And to Mike, what we were just saying before about you, you don't know if she's being clueless or if she's, I, I think she's saying shit like that on purpose to, to make it even more like, this is the kind of shit Gaston is saying in his cons. Yeah, people. yeah. Like, it's also it, like I think of a very. I think this is one of the earliest times of like that type of behavior being like ar- like archetypal on screen of just like because we all have some friend that just like I'm just gonna say something pretty crazy right now just to get the reaction of yeah. like people and just yeah. like I mean it's like most that's like that's like shit posting now on the internet and just like <laughs> you have you have these characters that I feel like are also like very indicative of the rich and the privileged of just like, uh, you know, it's it, it a one type of, it's a commentary on, on those types of echelon of people who will just say kind of insensitive things mindlessly. And we'll just like, but, but you know, what uh, thoughts, what do you guys think of like, but it, uh, and, and what she does so well is throughout the whole movie, you really never know where she's at. Like I said, you right, know, we know right. that she married rich. We don't know her background really outside of that. And what I do think with her and the way that she talks to both Gaston and to Miriam Hopkins' character, because remember, we set the template of this movie, which I think is so brilliant. We open with, well, 
we open with a gondolier, which is a great sight gag. Yes, that, yes. That anybody else opens on the most beautiful sights of Italy, and this movie opens on, I'm going to dump trash into a gondola, which is <laughs> a great bit. Um, but we open with, you know, Hopkins and, and, uh, and Marshall conning each other yeah. and being able to spot each other because we can always tell, right? And there is this thing, and look, uh, you know, uh, not to give anything away, but obviously Tom and I now work in, you know, we work in media. We get invited to and have to go to a lot of kind of high-profile events. We've gone to Fashion Week events and things like that. And e- even in just two sentences from the way somebody talks, you can always tell which people had to lift boxes in a stock room for a number of years mm-hmm. and which people had their dads get them the internships. You know what I mean? Like, we can spot each other pretty quick. And what I think is so interesting about Miriam, I mean, about uh, Kate Francis's character, is when she has those lines, and she does these things, and the way she talks to, to Gaston a lot, you do get that sense. We never actually know when she knows that something's amiss, right? Because we don't have an emotional reaction, because she takes it all very well, even when he's like, I stole your necklace. She's like, ah, good on you. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, and what I think about that is you do get the sense in those scenes, like when she's talking to, to Miriam Hopkins, right? A modern movie would play it more obvious, but it is very possible to read that scene as her essentially, potentially testing Miriam Hopkins being like, he works too long, but you're going to go home and, as though to be like, listen, I know what's up. If you don't want to admit it, that's fine. We can keep doing this. Like, I'll play along because it's fun for me too, but I'm going to needle you. And again, it does feel like when she talks to both of them, as opposed to when she talks to the board, right? She talks differently to Gaston or to Miriam Hopkins than when she talks to the board. And part of that does feel a little bit like, listen, man, I know what's, I know what's what, okay? You know, like, listen, I had to seduce the old rich guy to get in this position. You're having to seduce me. You had to seduce it. We all had to do this game. So let's just, I get it. You know, we're on the same page. I think that's so fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I do also, uh, you know, I've, I, look, we talked about the script. It's an incredible script. There are so many notes that I took that were just good quotes from this movie, most of which are followed up by me noting this is the horniest movie ever. There is an incredible, the exchange that they have when she goes, when she, you know, he turns around and goes, Madam, you know, the way you spend money, if I was your father and I saw you spending money like that, I would give you a good spanking, For, you know, uh, you know, business-wise, of course. And she goes, oh, what if you were my secretary? What would you do? The same thing. You're hired. <laughs> good punchline. Incredible punchline. Great very, bit. I mean, it's very, very smart and funny. There's also something I noticed of, like, there's sort of an Amy Poehler-esque performance with Hopkins. Yes. I, yeah. I noticed. I was like, oh, wow, I can definitely see, like, there's some of this, like, like you said, there's a modern sensibility to a lot of these comedic uh, movies from the time, but it's also like I can see, like the, you can see the formations of other things like bubbling up in the zeitgeist of like, oh, okay, yeah, I can see like, um, like, like this is, you know, this Miriam Hopkins role is only a few years before you know eventually Carol Lombard would become this type of character and like dominate. And and Miriam Hopkins too. Like I do think about this because I was researching her after this movie, and obviously she does Design for Living the next year, right? Yeah. And she does Story of Temple Drake the next year, mm-hmm. and she really feels like one of those people. You know, we talk a lot about actors from the silent era, 
whose careers died because of the advent of sound. Yeah. Miriam Hopkins really feels like somebody who, like, her archetype and her career was demolished by the code. Like, she seems like yeah. a woman who could not function in the code. And in fact, if you look at, like, her most notable roles, she's pre-code with Trouble in Paradise right. and with Design for Living and Temple Drake. And then the next most popular film she's in is 30 years later sure, sure. in The Children's Hour. Yeah. Right? Hey, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot. Which is, a, which is a, you know, kind of scandalous she's film for wonderful. its time. She's wonderful in that. that is she's terrific. But it almost it almost feels like she is an actress who who can only work, and I mean this in the best way, can only work in projects that allow her to kind of touch a live wire, right? Sure. And you know. sadly, she's not the only story of that. No, no. Like Kay Francis's uh, career also kind of like there's so many actors from the pre-code area that didn't really. You know, that could that for what for a myriad of reasons just didn't uh cross over. And a lot of them and a lot of them didn't work for a long, long time and were only picked up by younger directors who were fans of their work, yeah. which we see, you know, a la Wes Anderson, Quentin Tarantino, like all the all the people, you know, directors that do that. There's directors that do that now, Safdie Brothers, directors that do that now. Like that's that's also something that's probably never gone away. Of just like when new directors pop up, is like, oh, I love this actor. Well, I'm in forever because those those people were the only ones finding those old movies, right? Right. Like right. Trouble in Paradise is buried for decades. Yeah. Right. They're not. Yes. As, you know, as was many of the Code movies at the time. Yeah. They were never uh, screened on television. If they were, they were heavily edited. I mean, the story of Temple Drake. Is literally, I mean, it comes out in '33 and then is not seen again until 2011. Basically, sure, sure, yeah. Like that's insane. Like that's you know that's insane to think about. And mm-hmm. I think that these directors, the ones who are really passionate about films, are the only ones seeking out these reels or have the ability to find these reels. Right, right. And I think one thing we forget when we talk about the co- the Hayes Code, is we forget that people liked it. Uh, and I'm not saying the Hayes Code was good. I'm saying it in the sense of like. We have this idea in our heads when we think about the Hayes Code that it was a thing where the government just on its own decided, we're going to have movie rules. And the public went, we don't want it, but we can't help it. No, 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 no. These things were, the pre-code movies were toxic for a lot of people. And Hollywood was, you know, that whole Hollywood Babylon thing, you know, that was considered toxic to people. And there was a lot of, very strong moralizing for decades afterward with a certain type of film audience that was not only like were these movies objectionable but if you made these movies you were objectionable yeah that doesn't sound familiar at all no no doesn't sound familiar at all we're not dealing with it at 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 all at at any point in time anytime two people kiss on screen we don't get a week of discourse about how those characters didn't consent to being watched on camera, which is, you know, a totally normal thing for a person with a fun- fully functional brain to say. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it is, it's, you know, that's one of the, you know, fucked up joys of doing this show is just seeing the circuitous way that everything works. That time is just a, a wheel. You know, Ka is a wheel, yeah. as as Stephen King puts in his books. And just right. the point I wanted to make. 
because uh, you guys uh, said uh, Miriam Hopkins had a very Amy Poehler thing. Is it just me or does K uh, Francis? Am I saying that right? K. Yeah, yeah, K Francis. She's got an Eva Green thing, right? Is I can that, see that. Uh, Eva Green, uh, Casino Royale, the the more recent Casino Royale. Uh, oh, right, 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 right. She she's yeah. like if Ava Green was a goof. Yeah. She's just as horny as Ava Green sure, because sure. because you watch all of Ava Green's movies and you go, oh, that woman is aching for it. Uh, you know, one of the best scenes in one of the dumbest movies of all time is it th- the sequel to 300, where she has a fight fuck scene, which is wow. just totally deranged. But she is all in. Sure, uh, sure. In more ways than one. Hey, um, see now, David, what I like about when we have you on is that, uh, you know, as represented by us talking about if I had a million and Tom Ta- and, and Pigskin Parade and then Tom talking about the 300 sequel. When you're on, it's a trifecta of people who have seen movies that no one else has seen. Yeah, it's just yeah, a great yeah, trifecta yeah. Of, of people where our listeners go, I didn't know that existed. And yeah. I don't think anyone should know that existed. <laughs> Listen, everyone, everyone should know the 300 sequel exists because it has the single worst cut to credit song of all time. It is a pro-war movie that right. ends with the credits playing to War Pigs by Black Sabbath, the very virulently anti-war song. Guys, everyone was on the ball that day. So funny. <laughs> the edit bay was getting their paychecks listen, and earning it that week. Well, listen, uh, Tom, I got to get you to watch Pigskin Parade because I just want you to try and fathom that there was a football musical starring Judy Garland and mm-hmm. also one guy plays a big dumb jock who kicks the ball very good and that's his only character and he's just a, a you know a one-note joke. Right. And that guy got an Oscar nomination for best supporting actor for that that year. Amazing. Well, listen, I support, I, Again, I support any character that's very Nigel Gruff, you know, <laughs> anybody that, you know, there's a clear line between that and the replacements. So I'm always I'm always a fan of that. Uh, now you're just making me wish that uh, Burt Reynolds made a football musical. You know, he made a few football movies in his day. He yeah. he tried the musical thing a few times in his day. It's uh, at, he didn't cry. Yeah, they didn't ever try to get a uh, remake Pigskin Parade. And again. Football is a new sport yeah. at this time. Yeah. At that time, it's like it's a. Like I watched. Um, I watched uh, the Freshman, the Harold Lloyd movie. For the we covered time. that last season. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I was very. I was. It's another thing of like all these things that feel, you know, they have different. They have different contextual meanings now. It's just like that movie's all about how just like college was an aesthetic. Yeah. Football was new. It was like all these things are just like you were talking about the the commun the communist. This guy has read too many books. Intellectual that talks too much archetype is pretty much invented in the silent film era yeah. as like an archetype of like look at this fucking college know it all jackass trying to make me feel stupid or whatever. And uh, same as like it's it's these are all the. The new the new zeitgeisty things in the same sense of like how movies will often f- feature characters who are podcasters, or movies will feature characters with like AI going awry, or like these things that are just like 
uh, oh, this is um, something to do with Bitcoin or uh, uh, some sort of like, you know. Getting a game stock, GameStop stock movie soon, guys. Get ready. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not joking. It's actually happening. You know, exactly. So. No, perfect example. The ga- like all these, all these different like just rip from the headlines things that are like mo- they say more about our society that we make movies about them almost as much as the actual events do. Well, and it's like that happens in older films. It's one of my favorite things is to find those things. I mean, my uh, my partner and I, uh, we recently went through every Disney animated film, and I'm not talking. I want to be clear. I'm not talking, oh, we did the animated features, like a nostalgic. No, 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 no. The old shorts. We went back to the Alice shorts. We did all that. Because those, when you go back and look at that, they are satire. And -hmm. they are referencing things. There is an early Mickey Mouse short where uh, Clarabelle Cow is seen sitting in bed reading a book. They show you the cover of the book. I forget the title offhand, but they show you the cover of the book. And then Horace, Horace Collar walks by, and she hides the book under her pillow. Mm Mm-hmm. A normal human being, I, I assume, looks at that and goes, okay. But of course, I had to figure out what that book was. And it turns out that that book was a scandalous erotic novel in sure, the 30s. Sure. And it yeah. was like, it was the equivalent of a Fifty Shades of Grey gag today. Yeah. Like, that's what that book was. So they're doing a bit in this 30s cartoon that is essentially like, you know, Clara got reading Fifty Shades of Grey and then hiding it under a pillow because she doesn't want anybody thinking she's reading anything disreputable or anything like mm-hmm. that. And that's... Well, I mean, old cartoons are great. Are like the original BuzzFeed. Articles. Yeah. They are very like, like Looney Tunes also are like wall-to-wall uh, reference of the time gags that are, that blow over most people's heads now. That If you are also like me and spend time like wait what does that joke mean yeah and research is like oh okay oh wow this is like littered with jokes i'm not even aware of and we i mean to bring it back to the freshman i remember there's a gag in the freshman where they're referring they're trying to tell you like oh the dean is a taskmaster Mm -hmm. and they have a line on a title card that says like he makes simon legree look like an angel Yes, yes, And yes. Simon Legree is, like, the villainous slave master from Uncle Tom's cabin. Right, So right. in that episode, I say, like, that's, like, evoking Darth Vader. Because yes, for yes. the culture of the 1920s, Uncle Tom's cabin topical. was Star Wars. Yeah. Not just topical. Like, that was the most popular book in the country. Like, that was, that was now, everybody's thing. Now I'm truly just imagining what a world it would be. If so Disney Plus had to announce Uncle Tom's Cabin so Disney Plus shows, no, listen, oh, I'm just oh, saying. Mean, okay, you mean okay? Yes, 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 yes. If Disney, if Disney Plus existed back then, and they needed to announce, you know, it's if it's that time, Star Wars, all of the spinoffs, you know, you know, how did he become an uncle? You know, <laughs> I mean, I will say who, this: what, who in his bloodline is named Tom? Where he here's, got the name Tom? But here's the crazy: how thing. was the cabin built around that time? You kind of get that because since copyright wasn't nearly as strong, and also right. you had no idea what was going on in other states, mm-hmm. especially in the South, Uncle Tom's Cabin. This is off topic, but Uncle Tom's Cabin starts to become like when the Italians started making sequels to movies they didn't own. Yes, hell yeah. Like how there's how there's well, I mean, like in this case, less less hell yeah, but still, uh, like they basically take Uncle Tom's Cabin and like, look, this book is really, really popular. 
people want to know what the story of Uncle Tom's Cabin is, but also they're going to be real pissed off when they find all this anti-slavery stuff. So what if we stage a play and we just kind of change some of that and we kind of tone it down and Simon Legree becomes, you know, one bad guy as opposed to an indictment. And what if we start writing fake sequels where he comes back where you're just like, what the fuck are you doing? It's the, it is deranged how many like weird, because that book was, it was a phenomenon. And that's one of those things. Yeah. We talked about it. Uh, on my darling Clementine, I talked about Zane Gray's Riders of the Purple Sage. Right? Yeah. And, you know, that was the book of its time. Like, Zane Gray right. was, Zane, you know, we all, when we think of the 20s, we think of F. Scott Fitzgerald, and we think of Hemingway, we think of the writers who have survived, but it's, you know, it's the same way, like, when people talk about, like, I don't know, literature in the 90s, they'll talk about, like, David Foster Wallace and, and Dave Eggers mm-hmm. in the 2000s. But really, if you're like, what were most people reading? It's Stephen King and Dan Brown and Tom Clancy. Right, and like right, these guys. Right, right. Zane Gray was like, yeah, and Zane Gray was the Stephen King of his day. But what you see when you look at a Zane Gray is you look at, he's actually doing some interesting stuff when it comes to women. There's some progressive ideas in there, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then the Westerns that come afterward and are derivative of that take all of that away. You know, mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. also take away a lot of the adamant we should shoot Mormons, which, okay, in that case, I get why you reel that back. Zane Gray, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, think, I don't know. Think the guy's got a, it's think t- the guy's got something. Tom, <laughs> it is, I, I, it is truly one of those. I mean, and look, and I understand, like, when you look at the book, you're like, right, Brigham Young just died like 10 years ago when this, right, right, written. right. Really, like, there's... at this point, Mormonism in Zane Gray's books is like Scientology. Right? Yes, yes. I, which it, is also fascinating to put it in that context of like, wow, yeah, this was very new at that time, and they must, it must have sounded ridiculous and like sort of, sort of like what the Book of Mormon, like you know, what the South yeah. Park guys did of like when we when they heard about like all the Mormon stuff and like just like being so close to like, wait a second, you thought Jesus Christ came to America? <laughs> what, what and it's like about? he ends up writing a sequel years later to Riders. This is again not related to Troubles Riders, but he writes a sequel to Riders yeah. years later. That is this because the Riders of Purple Sage essentially just paints this Mormon sect cult that's in town uh, that wants mm-hmm. to kidnap the main woman and make her one of the elders' wives. And mm-hmm. Zane Gray kind of paints it as like these are just weird creeps who want to marry a lot of women. Yeah, they don't yeah. believe what they're saying. And then Rainbow Trail, which is a sequel, is Zane Gray going looks like the younger generation actually believes this religion and doesn't want to just marry a bunch of women. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's cool. I guess it's fine. And now, subs- um, yeah. imagine if Big Love ended with a, a cowboy just coming in and just shooting all those Mormons. Bill Paxton, how dare you marry all these women? Tom, and guess what? Just start shooting them up. There was, I haven't watched it yet, but there was a Writers of the Purple Sage adaptation in 1992 with oh, wow. Ed Harris in the main role. And I am so fascinated to find out what they do with that adaptation listen if you're going to make if you're going to make that into a thing in in an era where ed harris is alive you are legally obligated to cast ed harris in the movie it's just it it has to happen if ed harris wasn't in it i mean just burn the negative I see. Yeah, it's you have to you have to have Ed Harris in a movie like that because that's like that. I mean, I I you tell me that premise, I think of Mormon revenge western, 
where it's a where it's a Mormon where it's a um, one Mormon's journey into discovering how he can uh like is he gonna go on that fucking uh last house on the left quest of like <laughs> do I kill you because I have nothing left and because and does that make me oh does that make does that make me now you because I've I've done what you've done David I got news for you Rives the Purple Sage is public domain. There is literally nothing stopping you specifically from writing this sequel. You are legally allowed to do it. No one can stop you. Put Mickey Mouse in it. That's next year. You can't do that till next year. I mean, talk about this. This sounds like a Super Mario Brothers movie. Now that now that we're talking about it, I mean, like, just hey, listen. Somebody's got listen. They just set the record. You know, somebody's got to break the record. Records are made to be broken. So I think we cracked the code to beat Mario. And it's a record-breaking opening that was only made for babies and yes. not the not the geniuses who like the Sonic movies. I would love um, to. I would love to make a. a, a the, I would love to make the Super Mario Brothers sequel. I'll take that. I'll take that helm, and I would like to do it the same way of like it's a, just a, a gritty rehashing of the first movie, where it's, it's not like a I, I was. Sequel. It's more of a spiritual scene. I, I thought you were implying you just do Writers of the Purple Sage. Yes, with, exactly. So it's, so it's yes. So guys, uh, if you're listening to this, by this point, David and Tom have already been arrested on the Universal lot <laughs> for <laughs> waving a script that says Koopas of the Rainbow Road. They've yes. already been detained. <laughs> we got to just roll with it. Um, it's very, pe- it's very Peckinpah-esque. There's a lot of like, uh, there's a lot of it's brutal, set in Mexico. brutal killing scenes it's set in Mexico. It's very, yeah, you've got, we've got real criminals working we, on set for like, we moved Chris Christopherson to, to show up and, you know, we, we pulled him out of mothballs. Uh, yeah. You didn't like Chris Pratt as Mario? We got a different Chris for you guys. And you're going to be surprised how he sounds. Yeah. It's He's- Danny Trejo. <laughs> oh, Danny Trejo should be the Luigi to Chris Christopherson's Mario. <laughs> oh, if only Warren Oates was still alive to, to play Bowser. <laughs> That's Bowser. That's the guy. Like, I love, I love Hopper's Bowser personally, but you know, or his, rather his King Koopa. But yeah. like Warren Oates was meant, was the actor that was always meant to play Bowser. Hang on, David, bring, bring me the I, head of I'm- King Koopa. I'm so <laughs> I'm so off topic that Kyle's probably making feverish notes now. But David, do you know about the first actor to play King Koopa in live action? No, no. Who? It wasn't Dennis Hopper. Right. Oh wow. Okay. What What was for this, a then? period of time there was a localized to Los Angeles only television kids television show. I believe it was called like King Koopa's super cool show or something like that and i believe cool is also spelt with a k uh but they put words in between it so it doesn't become like the crusty show at the uh, apollo if anybody remembers that incredible bit uh when crusty the clown walks out at the apollo yes. with a stage with three k's and just goes oh no <laughs> anyway um and uh and i believe they also did the ice capades super mario themed so all before that at the Ice Capades, King Koopa was played. It was a TV special of the Ice Capades. King Koopa was played by Mr. Belvedere. You can look it up. It's just Mr. Belvedere in a big plush Bowser suit with green face paint on his face. What year would this have been? Uh, ooh, this is like 
mid eighties, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely pre the movie. This is like, this is back when this was still a weird fad. I believe I texted Tom the picture of Belvedere Koopa once without context. And all I got Mm. back was why? And it wasn't clear if it was, why did you send me this or why did this happen? But it was definitely a why. Um, back back to Trouble in Paradise. I have a few yeah. things I want to add from that that film that I do. There's some other bits that I loved, uh, and you know we can. But there is two incredible sex jokes in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of which is when uh, Herbert Marshall has taken over and he's giving everybody instructions, and they decide to have the instructions he's giving. Kay Francis yeah. is bending aerobically, and then yes. going, "Is this how you want it?" Like what a And then the one that I love, that I do look at, and I'm like, why is no one doing... Like, some of these gags, I get it, they don't work with them. But there's one where I'm like, I've never seen this shot done again, and it's such Mm -hmm. a clever shot, which is when they're talking, uh, you know, him and and Kay Francis are talking, and he's bouncing around them to kind of show, like, they're talking about hooking up. And he just gets a shot of the empty bed, but with their two heads in shadow on the bed. Mm-hmm. And it's such a good and I'm like, how has how has this not been copied one million times? Right, right. Like, that's right, such right. a perfect, subtle gag that says so much. You know, there's all these little like go over your head kind of, you know, body gag. Even the start. The start of the movie is an image of a bed and the words trouble in mm-hmm. and then a pause before it shows paradise to very clearly say trouble in bed. It's like from right, the get go, right, these right. little gags. But anyway, I just wanted to make sure I highlighted those little, uh, you know, those little bits that I love. I mean, it's it's always just delightful to see such explicit dialogue, but it's also super smart. And, you know, that the rat-a-tat pacing yeah. and the very like the double entendre. But like it's it's also just, you know, there's this is this is an era where, you know, again, like obviously we're talking pre-Haze code people are. Filmmakers are really trying to see what they could get away with, and you know, and also like we really only have a tradition of literature and theater at this point. Theater has a couple of like, you know, there I I know there were like not like Hayes esque like there, but there were like always like oh this this was a, a controversial play. Or like this is a controversial book, and books you can still like you still like books. Anything can happen in a book. Yeah. You can literally write whatever you want to happen in a book, and movies become the first thing where it's just like, well, suddenly people are policing these. Well, in fairness, in fairness, a couple of years before or a couple of decades before, this, James Joyce is getting banned in the U.S. Yes, yes, of you course. know you do have those I mean, rare you still, exceptions. You still have that, but like it's all, but it's also like the Hayes Code is coming at the, it's like it's the first uniform like form of censorship on the internet. yeah it's like um when the internet was unruly the when the early days when when things had to be people realized that things had to be monitored and people realized that the things could get out of hand if there was no boundaries yeah. to uh but like you also get this time I, I just want to say, like, some of my favorite things of this movie, of, of these of these movies, is I, I don't know quite how to articulate. So I'm just going to try and, and, like, vocalize it. Like, there's something super hot about 
you know, that very like two characters uh, saying these like this, this like intimate dialogue or the, or this like really funny like dialogue and then just cutting to an old phone ringing. <laughs> yeah. There's just something incredibly sexy about that of just like, oh, wow. Who's on the line? Like, I don't know. Like, yeah, just there's yeah. something about just like, you know, just like all this rat-a-tat dialogue, all this like, all, you know, it's very sexy. And then you just cut to a phone, like, just a, like, just a phone with the, you know, receiver ringing. And it's just like, <laughs> oh, wow. I don't know. Something about that is very interesting to me. I mean, on that note, one of the other great, uh, you know, Sexy X is early on when they're in Italy, they realize they're into each other. They put the do not disturb sign on the door. And then the next thing you hear is, oh, and it cuts back to the Italian guy singing on his gondola. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was great. Just, oh, what an incredible gag. Tom, what's your favorite sex joke in this movie? We've just, we've all gone around here at this point. Honestly, it's probably the one you said before of when he, he, they're like replicating the routine of yes, Miss yes, 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 yeah. yes, and just I, 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 I guess I must have looked at my phone for a quick second because I thought it was the maid and not Kay Francis, <laughs> but just seeing bend over with that that grin on her face, and I'm just like, okay, this this movie, this movie fucks, you know, yeah. I, 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 and and you know what. Guaranteed, Mike Myers loves this movie. Oh, for sure. I, oh, I hundred percent. I think Mike Myers uh, tried to at some point. Like you, you I mean, I was. Th- you know what I was thinking about uh, when I was watching this movie? How I Married an Axe Murderer. Yeah, yeah. Has like, yeah. a lot of similar moments uh, to this movie in terms of just like this is really funny, uh, ratatat, like insane dialogue. And very and like really like very funny. We're we're like we just started dating and are getting to know each other. Like lines of like that are that are very reminiscent of this movie. Uh, I, I I definitely wouldn't be surprised if Mike Myers had fancied himself like I want to be. I want to like tr- transition to an Ernest Lubitsch part of my career. I mean, I think there's so many of those people of the '90s, '80s, and '90s comedy directors who are like that because there is that element of you know the they're not aping like you're like I said you're Mike Myers and a lot of that like SNL or guys they're not aping the comedy of ten years ago they all mm. grew up watching Abbott and Costello and Ernst Lubitsch movies and all of those comedies on television with their parents or their grandma or whatever you know and they have that base of knowledge and whereas at the time that was what everybody was doing it somehow felt fresh at the end of the 20th century, because nobody was doing it like that anymore. It's like, I was listening to, um, so he's a, he's a wrestler uh, of all people. His, uh, his name is RJ city. He's, he hosts a talk show for AEW now. He's very funny, but he talked about, it. he goes, they're like, Oh, you're so funny. Where does your humor come from? He goes, well, my humor seems like new and clever because when I was a kid, my grandma was like, you have to watch Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. You have to watch these Don Knotts movies. You have to watch these old comedies. And he goes, so then I would go to school and assume that everybody had seen them. And they sure, hadn't. Sure. And so I kind of got to sort of morph that into my thing. And I do think, yeah. like, Ernst Lubitsch isn't talked about the way that a Hitchcock is or a Kubrick is yeah. or anything like that. Or even the way that a, a Howard Hawks or a Preston Sturgis is, right? Yeah. He doesn't get brought up that way. And yet, his work so informs so many generations of comedic filmmakers. Mm. Well, 
you know that that gets into another conversation which is that for all the bitching and moaning people today make about how horror movies aren't respected comedies are the are the genre that i feel has for the most part been ghettoized i mean they don't yeah. even really make them as movies in theaters anymore they ne- they almost rarely even more rarely than horror movies or genre movies don't get awards contention so guy you know that all the directors you said that have lasted hitchcock you know howard hawks all those guys they made genre movies those last comedies everyone's like yo i loved it and then 10 years later nobody's really t- you know comedy's a weird thing where it could really affect somebody but then you know and it's it's kind of you know i kind of fall into that pattern too having costello some of the funniest shit in the world but when yeah. i think of my favorite movies or the directors that inspired me whatever something in my mind i never think of comedies and i think a lot of people are like that i can't explain why unless you're in comedy improv stand up what have you unless you're one of those people it's almost like you never you you can't think of comedy in a like quote unquote legitimate way because it's not you know it's something that everybody can enjoy and not just the grown ups or something like that I don't know it's 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 interesting I feel like there I feel I feel like when I was growing up there was uh, and I'm sure you know some of you can maybe like speak to this but like I feel like comedy used to be thought of as universal like people can just but. I think now it's more understandable that comedy is more sub- subjective and even localized than we were willing to give it credit for. Cause, because, like, I think there's so many things that people don't have in common in comedic, in regards to comedic taste. We in this room like these movies, like, love these types of yeah. movies. I know plenty of people that really don't pay attention to any of this type of content or like who through like their, their comedy is like night day fiance or even like their idea of comedy is not even not like, you know, I, I, I was at a wedding and I very recently and I was talking about um, what people were watching just with like what made them laugh, what comedies they were watching. And, and one person just said um, great British bake off. Like the idea of comedy, I think, is so fractured now of like just what people of like comedy is not necessarily like the genre that we think of comedy is just what people watch to like if it's not scrolling Twitter. That's just like comedy is like what they do to unwind. And some people just cannot handle. I think like a lot of what is it? Uh, very few comedies really get made now. I think the few that get released theatrically do terribly. Yeah. Like, um, like Bros, which I really enjoyed, but didn't like nobody really saw, nobody went to see. Or the movies that I like that that are really good, I still don't know that many people. Like I liked Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar a lot. I liked uh, 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 Palm Springs. These movies that have pretty solid premises that are also very funny, character-driven pieces. I know people who have said, I couldn't watch it. It's too stressful. And so it's very like, I think there's just like, I don't, I don't know if it's just like a culture thing right now where I think, I think plot really stresses a lot of people out right now for whatever reason. I, and I think like, there's Mario did really well. I think I with know, comedy, I mean, I'll say this and I've said it before on the show, but I think with comedy, it's also, we're in a time when the biggest thing we're lacking in terms of audiences is introspection. 
mm-hmm. art requires introspection and comedy especially requires introspection and that is why i think like when you look at the comedies that the oscars have honored recently because tom said well they don't get oscar recognition we keep forgetting that like every year they've nominated a satire for best picture but those satires are empty they're mm-hmm. adam mckay doing don't look up or they're Ruben Oslin doing Triangle of Sadness. And the reason... I would say, like, everything Everywhere All at Once could be... Yes, could that is... Maybe the I, most successful example of Absolutely. But, but yeah. I think that comedy requires introspection. Yes. And I think that the reason we used to enjoy... I hate to say that, like, we used to enjoy comedies, but it really was a thing of, like... Like, to go back to the, the, the one-off communist character in, uh, in uh, Trouble in Paradise, right? Look, we were dealing with tough economic times, and there were probably a lot of people who went to see that movie who not only sympathized with that character, but probably agreed with that character's beliefs and were still able to go, okay, we can kind of be blowhard assholes sometimes, right? Mm. Like, there was the ability to kind of go, all right, you know what? We can kind of be, you know, like, whatever it is. You, you went to a comedy and you expected it to satirize, you know, you expected it to, to some degree or another, satirize you right? Mm-hmm. You had to have some degree of introspection because the hope is you come out of any work of art, but especially comedy, having a slightly different perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Having a slightly different perspective on things. And now, I think when you talk about people saying, I couldn't watch that, it stresses me out too much. Like, yeah, it's partly people wanting to know where something's going to go. And yeah. it's also wanting the safety of the validation, right? It's the right. safety. I mean, look, I really liked everything everywhere all at once. I really do. But, you know, we talked about it on our Oscars special. Like, obviously, even the directors had to come out and be like, some of these fans are way too intense about the be nice message. And they're yelling at people who aren't nice. We need to relax. And I think that that's kind of what it becomes. People just attach so much to this and and just, just want the validation. And I think that's why these comedies now don't work is people don't want to go to something that's going to make them laugh at themselves. They want to go to something that's telling them, we all agree that these people suck, and that's why we're going to make fun of them. And it's like they're well, too stressed funny. out to really like feel like they're too stressed out to really be challenged about how they uh, like. Which I think is a very I I, I don't want to sound like an old man right now, but that, I do feel like that's a that's a I don't I don't know if that's um we got we we got to be okay with not feeling good about ourselves yeah absolutely like not not feeling like that we are virtuous 24 hours a day seven days a week like we have to be okay with the fact that there are negative aspects of ourselves that we don't like that we have to challenge to see if we are even like do we still value these things or like you know now now it's very frustrating to satirize anything in, in media because you have a very vocal audience that can respond back and affect the like you know in in an executive's mind can affect potential sales of your product so you have to curtail everything very sensitively now especially if it's a if it's like nazis like yeah yeah, cannot even say that nazis are bad in movies anymore they have to it's you you, because you can't you can't defend them god forbid you offend like the the right the the right wing or the alt right like uh shit posters of the internet and like but you... but to your point but conversely on the opposite end of that I know plenty of people who like I you know uh I, I was talking to somebody actually about to be or not to be 
right? The Imperial mm. Salvation Company. And they were just like, I don't think you should joke about that. Like, the Nazis were, were bad people. Like, I don't think you should, like, that, that shouldn't, like, that's not funny. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, when you watch it, like, you see that it's, it's funny. And they're like, no, I just, like, you know, I think about, like, all of that. And I just think, like, especially now, like, it's not the time to, like, make fun of, you know, the Nazis. I'm like, okay, but I need you to understand that the people that made this particular movie knew the actual German Nazis and had to flee them and were having bricks thrown at them. Yeah. If they want to make this comedy film, I don't think we in the 20s get to sit back and go, I don't know if they should. No. They, if anybody has license, it's the Europeans who fled to Hollywood in the 1930s. I think they have a grasp yeah. of what that was like then. It is a little, it is a bit of like a just get over yourself type of a situation where yeah. just like, well, you know, you didn't make this. And also you, like, I think, I, th- I think there is like a very, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of an impossible person to talk to sometimes with the, with this, with this type of mindset, but it is like a thing of like, why did you react that way? Yeah. Why did you have this? Is it like, because I don't think you reacted because of the way you think you react. You reacted because of a, an internal fear you have about why you should or shouldn't like this. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I, f- I feel like all the time people uh, get really stressed out when they're, when they have to be challenged on why they like something in within, you know, the context of, of, of a movie. And uh, it really, it really bothers them as, as, as opposed to in a way that really perplexes me of like, how do you enjoy art? It's all just it's all just validation. I heard a great story today about um when John Cassavetti saw a place in the sun. He saw it, he walked out, he was so pissed off and angry at the movie he just watched, he ripped up his ticket and threw it on the floor and started stomping on it and said that was the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. He then proceeded to buy a ticket and go back in to watch it again. He watched it six times in a row. And by the time he was done watching it, he said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make movies. This is now my favorite movie of all time. Now, kind of perfectly to what we're saying, he had a reaction. Something poked at him. He didn't know what it was. He was really mad. And he said, I got to go see it again and figure out what the hell is getting getting at me so bad. And by the time he was done, you know, he had some introspection and... He changed his life and he changed cinema. So guys, guys, what I'm saying is if you ever watch a movie and you're so mad at it, watch it six times in a row and, uh, you know. Yeah. Oh, Tom, how are your, Tom, how are your other five viewings of Triangle of Sadness going for you then? <laughs> By your uh, own well, standard. Uh, you, you bought the Criterion, I'm assuming, right? Uh, no, but uh, uh, my plans to finally eliminate Ruben are uh, underway. <laughs> Making Kyle's job so much harder take, for him. Take that, society. Um, <laughs> I, I've I, got you again, society. Uh, yeah, but like, but it's also this thing of you know we were talking about the Hayes Code before, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, and when you look at some of the commentary online now, you have older people who maybe know you know looking at some of these you know comments of younger people who you know don't know any better, but they're still like, you guys understand that you're advocating for a new Hayes Code, right? Like you get that that's, mm-hmm. and the problem with that is just like with anything else. And we talked about this way back on our Chinatown episode too, which is like when you go to actual therapy or when you have a, a, you know, an addiction that you actually seek treatment for. Yes. Early on, they are going to go, Hey, 
if you can't stop yourself from drinking and this is really hurting your life, for a while, we're going to have you not be in bars and not be around any alcohol. And that's the first step. And then the second step is, and now we, you know, you're getting there. We want to get you to the point where you can be around people right. who are having a beer and it's not going to fuck you up. Right. Because if you don't have that second part, it just becomes prohibition. Right, right. And right. much like with the Hayes Code, like, yeah, understandably, like, I, the MPAA is, is, is fucked up for a lot of reasons. But fundamentally, I do understand the idea of being like, listen, if Hollywood wants to be able to make R-rated movies with R-rated content, we want you to know whether or not you're taking your kid to, like, G-rated Oliver or X-rated Midnight Cowboy. Like, you should have a sure, sense sure, of what you're getting sure. into. That's a compromise, because if you don't have that, and you don't have kind of, and you don't offer guidelines for people to be able to process things that are challenging, then the only thing you do is prohibition, right? And the Hayes Code right, is right. a perfect example of prohibition. It's a perfect example of going, uh, this stuff makes people upset and sad, so lock it away. No right, one should right, have access right. to it. And I think that, you know, when we're talking about any, especially with comedies and things like that, like, yeah, there's a lot of hacky people who make bad jokes about things or just can't land them. But at the same time, it's like, maybe we all need to be able to just laugh at things sometimes. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, there is a difference between a joke that is punching down at somebody and a joke that's, like, people say, like, don't punch down in comedy, you only punch up, right? I think we have a problem there. Because you should be able to punch sideways. You know what I mean? You should be able to go, it's not just they're terrible, right? It's not just point punching upward and going, these people we all agree suck or bad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You should also have the ability to go, we're also terrible sometimes. Yeah, we're also, yeah. you know, we're all, and like you get that in certain ways, right? Like you can watch like, you know, Tom and I uh, love to send each other Sopranos memes because we both grew up in Italian-American households. Uh, my, my partner and I will talk about Marvelous Mrs. Maisel sometimes and the Jewish families. And in both senses, like that, at least culturally, there is a way to go, listen, you know, I respect my, my people and my culture, but also we do some silly shit. We do some shit. Yeah, and we no. can just and we can just laugh at that. Like there is that ability yeah. in that one way. I think that it's 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 all about like uh, you know it's all context. Everything everything should be taken contextually, and also like if you're going to implement any rule, it should be for a reason, hopefully for the the greater good. You know, like for, for like to if you know if you're going to criticize what let's say what a comedian does or what a what a like what is it like what is behind the, are you criticizing them like because if, you, if you're going to if you're going to criticize someone like you could criticize someone like a tony hinchcliffe who's not like <laughs> who's like just a um uh uh uh, uh a troll like yeah. someone that doesn't do comedy but someone that is using comedy as more of a an an assault on on like quote unquote uh opposite values yeah or like or just or just like well I'm just I'm just trying to make a point or I'm this genre of comedian the dirtbag left as mm -hmm. they say yeah of course and, and like they uh and uh they the uh, which is which is just the name for which is just like a a name for the internet alt right mm -hmm. and then just like 
the idea of like if same with like the with the Hayes code of like going going back to that, you're like this is also an era where there was no discernment of entertainment. Like there was no like kids entertainment or adult entertainment. There was just the show. That was just like kids were subject. Like I think the first movie my dad ever saw was like the African Queen or something. <laughs> like I'm just movies that like and he saw it when he was like five years old. And it was so there's there's no there's no there's no entertainment for children. If you're gonna take your kids to the most people just drop their kids off at the movies and it was whatever's playing is just like what's gonna keep them yeah. entertained while I you know go do my job or or they, you know, it's the weekend or whatever. So you have kids that get exposed to a lot of violent things yeah. at the time. You know, like my, my dad saw the wild bunch when he was too young. And like my dad saw like like you know or I have so many friends or uncles that had seen things that informed you know their psyche later yeah. on in life and that's i i think and that, that's and that that's what's like you know the Hayes code is a response to something that was like it was it was an overreaction it was mostly a, uh propagated by the christian conservative movement of this country but it also spoke to something that was a universal truth that people could see was that, hey, look, these these racy jokes are great. But like my my kids saying this in yeah. school, like, you know, I can't I can't be like, you know, we got it. There's got to be some sort of line here. And, you know, as a like, you know, if I was a parent, I would I would I would maybe understand that. Like I was I, like. At the time, especially when, like you know, the so the so-called morals were the mainstream. And and look, we're not going to fault the comedians for that all the time. And because even people who do comedy will right. look back look, later like, and go, "I wouldn't make that joke." Like for example, right? Yeah, which and, is also which is also part of it, just like the the acknowledgement, the learning. The and going I, yeah, forward. and I'm going to go totally abstract here, but like if any of us had spent years improvising as a part human part uh aquatic creature hybrid that had to answer questions on the fly mm -hmm. uh and just make up an answer real quick i'm certain that even now they'd probably have days where they sit back and go is there something out there where i said something that i'm going to regret oh, now yeah i'm sure that person thinks about that all the time if i was that person like i know i would <laughs> if i if i didn't want to make kyle do more work i would definitely throw out examples but uh <laughs> i as we wind down as we always do i will throw this to tom tom how do you think trouble in paradise did at the academy awards i don't think it did yeah that's that's the correct <laughs> answer uh not nominated for any oscars wow as it was released in late 1932 uh, my best guess at what it would have been nominated because this was like the early like first couple years of the Oscars they're sure, actually sure. split between years so it's hard to figure out but my assumption is it would have been this year where the best picture nominees were 42nd Street A Farewell to Arms I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang Lady mm. for a Day Little Women The Private Life of Henry VIII She Done Him Wrong Smiling Through State Fair and the winner Cavalcade now for context, 42nd Street, She Done Him Wrong, State Fair, and I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang are all in the National Film Registry. In fact, we just covered I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang a couple episodes. That'll be out by the time this episode comes out. So you guys, if you want to hear me say how boring Cavalcade is, you can go back to that episode and find that. 
Uh, but otherwise, David, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, uh, man, this was you great. know, uh, a rare three-peat guest, a fan favorite. So we're so glad we were able to make this happen again. Uh, do you have anything you want to you wanna plug? Um, yeah, I I have a podcast now uh, about movies called The World of Tomorrow with David Bloodband, where I talk about sci-fi movies with a guest and uh, compare them to our modern times and the commentaries that they were making then and if they still hold up today. It's a sporadic show that I update kind of whenever I want on no set schedule. So the next episode will be TVD. But yes, David, don't it, let Tom know like- that's an option. <laughs> Do not let Tom know that that is an option. See, now this is interesting. <laughs> uh, I did not know the world could have anything good in it. <laughs> so this is uh, giving me some new outlooks on on certain things, and um, we're gonna have to have a conversation. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna get a text from Tom like next next week or two weeks from now. With him just going, listen, I'm just thinking, do it like David's TBD. Yeah, but Tom, the rest of us are in the room right now. We're all on <laughs> mic. We need you to come on. Yeah, but I'm in New Orleans. <laughs> uh, so, David, and that podcast is anywhere folks get their podcasts, right? You can listen to it on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and uh, and Stitcher as well. It's part of my, it uh, legitimately is in my gym rotation. That's, that's, oh, the I, so I, I give my, my wholehearted endorsement. Uh, Just like your podcast, his gym rotation is TBT. (laughs) (laughs) Well, David, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody else, stick around. We'll be right back with our picks for the National Film Registry. And meanwhile, off mic, I'm going to tell David what that human fish question was. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Honestly, like, please bury it. Like, please. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and me, who can submit their nominations for the registry in the form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of every episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration on behalf of your missing out. The only criteria? It must be an American film that's at least 10 years old. Here are today's picks. Originally, I had a different pick in this spot that led more into the romantic crime movie thing um but then in doing research for this film uh, this episode i came across a film that i wanted that i i then made my registry pick and then i came across another film that i felt more urgently had to be my reg that i felt more urgently had to be my registry pick um i'm not going to say what i was thinking originally because there's a chance that that's where tom's head is at uh because it is very much a tom movie um so we might be thinking the same thing but then I watched Design for Living, the Ernst Lubitsch film, and I was like, oh, this has to be in the registry. This is, this is great. This is crackling. This is very good. But then, just today, as extra research, I watched a film I evoked in the episode itself, The Story of Temple Drake with Miriam Hopkins. Uh, Miriam Hopkins makes Story of Temple Drake the year after uh, Trouble in Paradise, and we talked a lot about the Hayes Code on our Trouble in Paradise episode. Uh, as I said in that, the story of Temple Drake 
is the movie that leads to the stricter enforcement of the Hayes Code. It scandalized people, and it was buried until 2011, and then I think the Motion Picture Academy Museum did a restoration, and then Criterion put out a Blu-ray. Um, but, you know, it was lost for so long, so it's definitely a candidate for preservation on that alone. The way that the registry has been uh, selecting films that talk about uh, controversial topics and serious topics, it's incredible that a movie about violent sexual assault and coercion uh, and murder on top of that and all of that uh, comes out in 1933 and that we just didn't know about it for so long because it was so scandalous. There's some remarkably blunt dialogue in that film. I, I, was, I was blown away by this film, Story Temple Drake. Uh, I think it should absolutely be in the registry. It is an important part of film history and an important part of film history that was actively suppressed for decades. So, uh, story of Temple Drake is my pick for the National Film Registry. I'm just gonna shoot from the hip here. Uh, my pick is going to be Ocean's Eleven, Steven Soderbergh's movie. Feels very similar to me in a lot of ways of its like pro con artist tone. Uh, how it's very funny and very clever. A lot of good wordplay, dialogue, comedy stuff like that. It's very visually inventive and visually just just lush and lavish uh there is a love story angle there obviously not as sexual i mean for a guy who broke out with a movie called sex lies and videotape i don't think steven soderbergh's ever had sex <laughs> his movies have been very sexless since that debut movie tom i think you're i am i i don't want to cut it on your segment but i i think you're forgetting a very key soderbergh movie what soderbergh movie out of sight yeah his most sexual movie. I don't love Out of Sight. Ugh. It's good, but I don't love it. Sexy crimes. Sexy anyway, crimes. back to your back to your Jack segment. Yeah, I don't know. It this just felt some. I don't know. It, Ocean's Eleven is just one of those perfect movies. It's it's Soderbergh's always been great at bouncing between artful, uh, you know, thoughtful movies and these populist, entertaining movies without ever losing his artistry. Uh, he feels, I feel like he's definitely of an Ernst Lubitsch uh, school. Ernst Lubitsch bouncing around from different genres and what. And uh, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised for a second if this movie was not uh, something he was thinking about when making his Ocean's Eleven. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, you know, need more pro-crime movies in the uh, National Film Registry. Uh, pro-crime against rich, pro-fun con artists, you know. Just, just, just wish there was just Julia Roberts had a little more, uh, come give me that dick energy that, uh, Kay Francis had. Um, but otherwise I think this is a good match. I think this would be a good double feature. And, uh, yeah, my pick is, uh, Ocean's Eleven. The fun one, not the Rat Pack one. Ring-a-ding-ding. Let's all go to the lobby, lobby, lobby. Thank you again to David Bluff Band for joining us. Next week, we're mixing up the show format and bringing you our first live commentary episode for the 1923 film, Greed. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance. On the National Film Registry.